listening to She's a Powerhouse. My name is Holly Calloway, and I'm here to share with you some stories of ordinary women who have done some extraordinary things in hopes that you'll get comfortable being uncomfortable, be okay with pushing your boundaries, and do some extraordinary things yourself. Welcome back to this episode of She's a Powerhouse. If you guys remember last week, we talked to Rebecca Heiss, um, who is, sorry, that was two weeks ago. If you listen to the last episode... So we talked to Rebecca Heiss, who wrote the book Instinct, and we talked all about how the brain is wired, all of this neurology, all of these super cool things. She and I got along really, really well. It was such a treat for me to get to know her a little bit better. When I said, Rebecca, who else could we put on this podcast that is an absolute powerhouse that has so many amazing things that they could tell us and share with us? She said, I need to introduce you to my Oma. I have never had my heart melt so, so fast. Um, And so she introduced me to Dorothy Cantor, who is a six-time author and editor. She's written six books, written or edited six books on women's issues. Uh, She is a psychologist. So Dr. Dorothy Cantor is a psychologist. Um, And she has been on, I'm going to let her list the boards because I started writing them down. And then... I couldn't finish because there were so many, but I do want you to hear, I do want you to hear all of the amazing things that Dorothy has done. Um, and we're going to talk about kind of like where she ended up and then how she got there. And y'all, when we talk about, um, especially women my age and what we have left to accomplish, I get very fired up. I get a little bit angry. I get very passionate about what we have left to do to sort of close the wage gap, to find true gender equality from my perspective talking to Dorothy for like 10 minutes today brought into my perspective how far we've actually come and what we've accomplished so far. And that just like warms my heart to an incredible extent. So I can't wait for her to share some of this with you. She shared some really cool stories already. I'm excited for more. Dr. Dorothy Cantor, thank you so much for being here with us today. I appreciate you so much. So tell us about, brag on yourself. Tell me about your accomplishments. Uh, do I start with my children and grandchildren and great grandchildren? I mean, let's talk about the really important things. <laughs> but, <laughs> Absolutely. I love but, that. But seriously, um, I have done a lot in my lifetime. I, um, I've been, I seem to have been president of every organization I ever was part of, including being captain of the cheerleaders when I was in college. And I met my husband between my junior and senior year in college. And he said to me, if you're going to be my girlfriend, you can't be captain of the cheerleaders because I know what the guys think about the girls out there in their little short skirts. And I said, I didn't work this hard to be captain of the cheerleaders to have some guy tell me I couldn't be. And so I think that was my first recognition in myself that I wasn't just going to keep doing what was expected of me and just fit into the role that was set for women. That was my first. Um, Then I was president of a woman's organization when my kids were little Mm -hmm. because I retired from working because that's what you did back then. And, um, Tell me when back then, give me like a year range so we can just put it in perspective. Early 60s. Because you look 55, 60. And I know my I'm daughter's older than, than my daughter's in that age range. <laughs> I know that everybody's going to, if they went what, what you looked like, we have the wrong decade. So I wanted you to just okay, so we're give us the perspective. At least 60s. And awesome. so I'm part of this woman's organization. And then I realized that anytime there was any publicity about women, 
in the organization, they would be listed in the paper or anywhere as Mrs. Husband's name. And I I talked (laughs) to the then president of that organization and I said to her, this is a woman's organization. Why wouldn't it say Dorothy Cantor rather than Mrs. Gerald Cantor? And she said, oh, that's what the national organization's rules are. And I said, then I'll drop out and I'll rejoin it when they get the idea that women have their own names. Right. That's so, and in a time when that was just accepted, right? Like that wasn't it something was that anybody, it was. It was I mean, I can remember in high school practicing writing, not the guy I married, but my boyfriend's name with Mrs. in front of it, because mm. that's what you aspired to be, Mrs. Somebody. Um, I'm sorry, there's a fire engine going by. I don't know if you can hear that. I'm in New York. Um Anyway, of course, she's you, in New York. <laughs> if you, you just fast, so New York. If you fast forward, um, I became when I went to into my doctoral program. I was president of the class of students. Then I took some committee chairs at the State Psychological Association. Then I became president of the State Psychological Association. And then I was elected by the state to what's called the Council of Representatives of the American Psychological Association, which is a huge national organization. And then I was president of that. So I was president of APA in 1996. And I then automatically rotated one of the perks, if you will, of the office was to become a member of the board of the American Psychological Foundation. And I rotated onto that and I listened to the first couple of meetings and I said, I'm not gonna stay on this board if all we're known for is giving gold medals to old farts. And all the old farts around the table looked at me and said, oh, she's right. So of course the next thing I knew I was vice president of the foundation. And two years later, I was president and instituted the first um, strategic plan so that we would have a direction and the first formal fundraising. This was a foundation. And we just waited for money to come over the transom. So our goal then was to have about $7 million in assets. I will tell you that we now give away a million dollars a year to students and early career psychologists who are getting started in doing the work that will help society be better. So that's what I did there. Then along the way, I was chair for 10 years of the Insurance Trust, which is the um, organization, the company that primarily sells malpractice insurance to psychologists. But then as part of my role there, we broadened the scope of what other um, insurance products we would offer. Um, In between, I wrote all those books you talked about. And I'll I'll speak particularly later, if you want me to, about the book I wrote and published in 1992 called Women in Power, The Secrets of Leadership. Oh, I need a copy of that one. It's still in print. It's it's gone. Um, So then because I was well known in my grad school, 
somebody nominated me first to be on in the Hall of Distinguished Alumni and then to be on the Board of Trustees of Rutgers University. Rutgers University is one of the few in the country that has two boards. It had been a private institution until 1956. Mm -hmm. And when it became the State University of New Jersey, the trustees very wisely said, any assets that belong to uh, Rutgers at this point will be under the control of the Board of Trustees. We'll set up a small separate Board of Governors for the operational side but we will control those assets. And that became very important. So I, I was on the board of trustees and the first thing I did there, I walked in and I looked around and I hadn't seen a group of old white men like that since my early days at APA. And so I went to the chair of the board who was an old white man and said, you know, Bob, this, board doesn't look right. We don't look anything like the student body. Never mind that we were old, but representational. So he said, would you like to chair a committee on diversity? And one of the things I learned is if you open your mouth, you have to be willing to take the responsibility that comes with it, right? So it's the same thing that had happened with the foundation when I said, let's not just give gold medals, let's do something meaningful. So I chaired the Committee on Diversity and our recommendation to the board was that over, I forget, I think we said a 12 year period because terms were on the board were six years and so you couldn't do it any faster, that over about a 12 year period, the Board of Trustees would look like the population of the state of New Jersey. And you know what? It does. Yeah. It does. I love that. Men and people of color and, you name the theme and variation, it exists on that board. And I told you that it was important that that board control the assets. While mm -hmm. I was on the board, we, um, the university was acquiring two medical schools, okay. but the, which we had never had. And the trade-off that the state wanted because some Politico, and this was all in New Jersey. I'm in New York now, but I lived in New Jersey most of my adult life. Um, the state wanted to take back one of our campuses in Camden, New Jersey. And the Board of Trustees said, you can't do that. We own it. We have control. And I remember going and testifying before the state legislature. And the president of the state Senate came in because... He really wanted this campus to become part of another university. And I remember he, he wasn't even a member of the committee, but that's how important it was. So I looked at him and I said, Senator, can I ask you a question? And he said, no, I asked the questions here. Well, you don't intimidate me that easily. So I said, then let me pose a hypothetical. <laughs> And I just put it out there. Everybody got the same message. I really didn't need his answer. <sighs> and to make a long story short, we did not give up the Camden campus and we got the two medical schools. Um, and then ultimately, having been chair of the Board of Trustees, I was 
sent up, as we said, to the Board of Governors. And just last year, I finished a six-year term on the Board of Governors. So that's what I've been doing all these years. And somewhere in there, you got a doctorate. Well, yeah, let me go back. (laughs) I I told you I was a much more compliant young person. Person, And in my generation, unless you were a real risk taker, if you were female, if you graduated from high school, basically you were a secretary. If you went to a two-year school, you were a nurse. And if you went to college for four years, you were a teacher. Man. So I became a teacher because that's what one did. Um, And then I taught for two years. And by the way, you couldn't teach if you were pregnant. Did you know that? No. Oh, my goodness. You couldn't teach if you were pregnant. So I had a, I was pregnant with my first child toward the end of that second year of teaching. And it was getting harder and harder to keep a pin in my skirt and an overblast. And so one day I wore, I finally wore a maternity dress, but it was eight and a line and it didn't look to me it didn't look so maternity ish yeah and a kid in my class I taught fifth grade and he came over and he said Mrs. Cantor are you gonna have a baby and I thought how does this 10 year old know that and I said why are you asking me he said because my mommy had that dress last year and then she had a baby <laughs> oh that's so cute <laughs> you can't make it up. Oh, okay so now I stay home Mm-hmm. for a number of years with my two children, because that was also in the script. And during that time, um, I couldn't get a credit card in my own name. It just had to say Mrs. Charles Cantor. And that just blow your mind. Like, oh, it hurts me. Well, but that's me why like... it's so important. As you said yes. at the top of this, we have to realize where we started. I mean, at least I could vote, you know, mm-hmm, it's right. back to the suffragists. Yeah. But there were so many things that women couldn't do, like get credit in their own names. It seems so, it seems so dehumanizing. Like basic human rights is to have your own name, to yes. be your own person. You and don't have to be it, owned by somebody. It, it never occurred to me to even think about not changing my name. I know a lot of women now keep their own names or hyphenate Mm -hmm. their names. My generation, no. You just took your husband's name and that was it. Of course. Um, So anyway, I stayed home and one day my husband came home and I give him so much credit because he was ahead of his time. (laughs) And he said to me, Dorothy, you're bored and you're boring. Now that sounds really critical, but what he was really saying was, Dorothy, you're Mm. depressed, but we didn't know that word yet. Oh, yeah. He said, you were such a great student. Why don't you go back to school? Well, I was depressed. I I don't know. And he said, if you go back to school one night a week, I will come home from work early and I will feed and bathe the children and put them to sleep. And as I always say, when I tell this story, I was depressed, but I wasn't stupid. So I said, okay, I'll go back to school. Um, I came home a couple of days later and I said, honey, I'm enrolled in a master's program. And he said, oh, I thought you were going to take a course in the great American novel. No. So I set forth and I did um, 
took me four years to get a master's in reading education because that's all that was available at the state college nearby. Um, and I couldn't go too far because I had small children. Right. Then they opened a program in school psychology. So I marched my, oh, and no, I should say I was teaching. They asked me at the end of the program if I would teach the undergraduate reading course. Okay. But then I hear about this new school psych program. So I walk into the director and I said, I would like to be in your program. And she says, who are you? <laughs> I, said, I told her who I was. And she said, well, you can, I think we'd like you in our program, but you can't be in the program if you're also um, on the faculty. I said, okay, so I won't be on the faculty. And so oh I did a second four years. Now I'm in school for eight years getting two master's degrees and I'm working part-time now as a school psychologist. I have to tell this story because it is so germane to how things have changed and haven't changed. Mm, it comes later. Nope, let me skip. I go and I get my doctorate. Um, Rutgers had just opened a new doctoral program that was I could get to Remember, my children are now teenagers. I'm trying to balance everything. And I finished my doctorate in two years because I already had a gazillion graduate credits. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I'm still working as a school psychologist, but now I'm Dr. Cantor instead of Mrs. Cantor. And a principal, a male principal and I had a conference with parents about their child. And when I left the principal's office, he patted me on the backside. I didn't say a word, but the next time he walked in front of me, I patted <laughs> him on the backside. And trust me, my dear, it never- Did that go over well? It, That's well, amazing. It, it never happened again. It never happened again. I was also introduced by the director of special education to a PTA meeting. And this is Dr. Dorothy Cantor. You're so lucky she's your school psychologist. She's our prettiest psychologist. Thank you very much. Because uh -huh. they'd ever say that a male, about a male psychologist. Right, ever. well that, you say that and it reminds me when I start enrolled in the doctoral program, People said to my husband, how do you feel about your wife being a doctor? And I remember I said to him, nobody ever, ever asked a woman, how do you feel about your husband being a doctor? Right. Or they would say to him, um, your wife is going to be a doctor. She must be quite a handful. Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. By now we're in the mid seventies. Okay. All right. So things... Yeah. The women's movement is starting. Things are changing. Um, not fast enough to satisfy any of us, but changing. And it's incremental. And anytime any one of us makes a move in the direction away from tradition, it's going to have a ripple effect. So from the time I patted Mr. R on the backside, I doubt that he ever did that to a woman again. That's part of the ripple effect. That was long before there was a Me Too movement. 
Yeah. That's amazing. I love that that was your response. I love all of your responses. I love that in a place where that I can't imagine how many, how few women would have the gumption to pat him on the backside or to say, let me pose a hypothetical. Did it, does it give you kind of that, like that heartbeat moment of like, I know that this isn't societally acceptable and I'm going to do it anyway. Kind of I don't even rush. think I go through that process. I it just doesn't, you just, to, I'm doing it. It's, it's very New I, Jersey of you. It's just very it's, <laughs> forward, it's, bold out there. It, it's who I am. Uh-huh. And um, one of the interesting things I, uh, to come, I was going to come back to, my, I've done six books, but I think to me the most important was the one called Women in Power, The Secrets of Leadership that I did with my dear late colleague, Tony Bernay. And we had been involved in the governance of the American Psychological Association, we wanted to start a women's pack, mm-hmm. a pack just for women who would support women and issues important to psychology. And we went to the APA pack and said, "Will you?" Which had a check off for education, practice, or science. We said, "Will you add a checkbox for women? We'll support women candidates." And they said. Well, give us some time to think about it. A year later, they came back and said, no. So we said, oh, well, and we started our own pack called Women in Psychology for Legislative Action. Uh-huh. One of the women who was involved in starting that is a dear colleague of mine by the name of Lenore Walker, who's known for her work with battered women. But she lived in Colorado and she knew Pat Schroeder, who was a Congresswoman who was at that time chair of the Congressional Women's Caucus. There were tops 25 women in Congress at that point. We're talking about mid to late 90s. So we decided that what our PAC would do would be to do a fundraising breakfast on the Hill every year when the organization meeting was in Washington. And... So Pat Schroeder came, Bella Absob came, Barbara Boxer came, Diane Feinstein came. We honored all of them, raised money for them. And then one day after a meeting, I said to Tony, what did those women know growing up that we didn't know? Because they were our generation, but they somehow had been able to break out of the mold And that became our book, Women in Power. And I will say the women in the Congress, and we had to extend it to women in high elected office around the states as well, because there just weren't enough women to create a sample. Mm -hmm. They were so willing to talk to us so that we could figure out what they got that we didn't. And, uh, It was one of the most exciting projects of my life. What did you find out? Well, to summarize it, they didn't get the girly messages. Be a good girl. Keep your mouth shut. You know, don't think, don't dream too big. They got what would have been more typically boy messages. You can do whatever you want. Don't be afraid to take risks. Dream big be aggressive. And, and we had to 
put the adjective we used creative aggression to describe it because if we just said women were going to be aggressive that might mean we were going to come in and be physically attacking so creative aggression was well the kind of thing i did when i said let's change the makeup of the board of trustees because aggression is really a drive in psychological terms it's what motivates us and pushes us. It's not a bad thing to have, but to associate it with women was very negative at that point. So basically that's what we learned. We also, we had had a hypothesis that most of these women would be um, only children or first in a family of girls because there had been a book published not that long before we were doing our work that was called The Managerial Woman. Okay. And that's what all of those women were. So they were son substitutes for their fathers. But the interesting thing about our pool of women was, first of all, most of them had siblings. And Tony and I were both only children. And we joked that we didn't learn how to sibyl. We didn't learn <laughs> how to do that. I like that. Fighting and then yeah. protecting of the sibling which was very important in terms of a level of aggressiveness mm -hmm. for these women. And they had very strong mothers. So it wasn't so much that the father was the role model, but their mothers, even if they weren't out there working or running businesses, they still were very powerful women who gave their daughters the message you can do whatever you want. So that that was such an exciting time in our lives. And then I was just telling a friend at lunchtime today, um, I was invited to the Democratic National Convention. I think it was in New York that year. And I brought my husband along and I ran into Senator Feinstein outside the arena and we greeted each other and I introduced her to my husband. And she did something so funny. She looked at him and she said, is this your first convention, dear? Oh. <laughs> and a total role reversal. Oh. Just cracked up. It was just such a funny kind of thing to do. Right. So, oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I love all the history. I love all the stories. I love this. I love what you found for the book to be honest, like that, that had to have been so, so much fun and thinking through the, well, obviously you can think through the psychology of it better than I can, but the, what we tell our kids matters. What we tell Clearly. our girls matters. What we tell mm. them and what we model for them. Mm -hmm. So if, if we fade into the woodwork, that's what they're going to learn about what a woman's role ought to be. Now that isn't to say they can't pick up the children can't pick up other role models. And the difference now between this generation of girls growing up and my generation is there are other women to look to. Yeah. There was nobody. Yeah. All even Ann Richards, remember Ann Richards, who was the governor of Texas, mm -hmm. who was the one who said that women did the same thing as men, only they had to do it backwards on heels. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you remember that. Oh, so Ann Richards said the only female role model she had 
was Wonder Woman in the comic books. Oh my goodness. But that's that just crazy. Good. There was yeah. nobody. I mean, I look at I look at somebody like the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now she was a little older than me, but not much. And she somehow or other broke out of the mold. Right. And went to law school. She actually went to Rutgers Law School, I am proud to say. And um, she's the kind of role model that girls have now. Girls see women anchors on television. We only had, well, first of all, there was no television when I was very little. But all the commentators, there was Huntley Brinkley, there was Walter Cronkite. Women had no voices. Mm. So it's very hard if you don't get it directly from your mother to get that message when there's nobody out around you Mm -hmm. to say, oh, I want to be like that. That takes me back to what you were saying about the the ripple effect, right? So there weren't extra people to look up to, but that, that woman teaching her daughter, right, that this is how you should be. And then that woman getting to a position where more women could see her as that example. And then those women, right? So then you've got that beautiful ripple effect. When um, Biden and Harris were their uh, election night or when we actually finally, you know, decided that they could go ahead and be in the White House, whatever. My daughter's eight. um, And she, she looks a lot like you, which I think is ironic in this little conversation. She's got your hair color. (laughs) It's kind of, she's got your face shape. Um, But she, so we talked about why we wanted who to win and why we voted the way we did and whatever. And I, I run a company. She watches me go to work every day. We talk about how I make money helping other women. Like we're very open right. about a lot of things um, for that exact reason. I, I all the time when she says, mom, I, I made this. Do you like it? I don't care if I like it. Do you like it? Are exactly. you proud of your work? Right. Those, those little things, just sticking those inside her head and very much like you know, she, I love animal facts right now. I'm like, great. Well, there's a lot of things. You could be a zoologist. You could be a veterinarian. Like there's all these things that you could do. You could do any of the things. And we don't put a, she wants to play rugby. I'm like, fantastic. Play rugby. That's it. great. Do your thing. Um, but when they, when they had their inauguration, um, my then husband and I sat there and we were both kind of just tearing, I think out of, uh, probably more, um, relief than excitement, but definitely there was a little bit of re- excitement. And she walked in and was like, we wanted her to see it, right? Come, come see Kamala Harris. Come see this woman, the first woman in the, in the White House and very excited about it. And she sat there for maybe 30 seconds and was like, am I, am I good now? Are we, right. why am Is I sitting here? Deal? Is this a big she, deal? Exactly. And there's part of me that's like, Oh, I wish you could grasp. Like, I wish you could understand that it is. But part of me is also so excited that she'll never have known any different. That's the point. I mean, I have been waiting at least since 1992 when we published Women in Power to see a woman president. Mm. I mean, our first opportunity was Geraldine Ferrara when she was running for vice president. And then, of course, the scandal was that her husband did something wrong. You know that. Such bullcrap. And so she got Uh, that brush and goodbye, Geraldine uh, Ferraro. Um, Then I watched Hillary Clinton and I said, okay, maybe this is going to be the time that I'm going to see a woman president in my lifetime. And we know what happened to that. And so seeing Kamala Harris, I I was like you. I was sitting here crying. So many tears. But I still want to live long enough to see a woman president. 
Ma'am, I feel like, hang on. So I'm going to admit out to the world at this point, I think this is the first time I've ever said this actively, publicly, and not just within my own group, that I would love to make enough money to fund AOC's presidential campaign. I want to like personally <laughs> I think you're going to have to win the lottery. You're going to have to win it's the lottery. It's possible. Exactly. In my head, I've got like somewhere between eight and 12 years to make enough money to make that happen. Like it, it, I've got, I have big goals out there, but I love her and I love her political stance. I think she has a shot at it truly just looking at trends, but I want to see that in my lifetime. And I look at her and I'm like, this would be a very perfect for me. And if I can help in any way, let uh-huh. me make that happen. I would love, I would love, 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 love to see her in the white house. And I feel like if I fund her campaign, she'll just go ahead and put me in the cabinet. So we should do both. I haven't thought of that. <laughs> you see how much more progressive you are. <laughs> that that was even a thing. There's a small business association seat in the cabinet. I was like, you know what? Let's fund this. And we just sit there. But, but that just tells you the difference between your generation and mine, that even though you're being a little bit facetious, there's also a kernel of truth there that, mm-hmm. I mean, look at all the women in the cabinet now mm-hmm. and women of color in the cabinet, mm-hmm. including a Native American woman. Who, who would have thunk it? I feel like at some point they looked at the cabinet and did what you did with that board and said, listen, we need this to be representative. You are ahead of your time. Well, in, in many ways, yes. And if you ask me how I got there, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what was your What was your mother like? What was your upbringing? Um, I was an only child, as I mentioned. My mother was a teacher. My mother was the only one of her siblings who went to college. Okay. Her parents were immigrants. And she went to college and she became a teacher. My dad was a lawyer. So there was an assumption even back then, that I would go to college. It wasn't even a, will you? It was more, where will you? Which Fair. was made me ahead of my time already mm-hmm. in the 50s mm-hmm. for that assumption to be present. So when did your mom go to college? Uh, my mother was born in 1910. And she graduated right? from college at the age of 19, in 1929. Oh my gosh. That is absolutely bonkers. Well, in, in New York, and I, and I grew up in New York too, so I graduated from college at 20. If you were a smart kid and they didn't know what to do with you, they skipped they sent you to a grade. No, they didn't send you right to college. <laughs> they had you skip a grade. Oh, wow. Rather than having enrichment programs and kids sure. and talented, they would just skip you. So... Well, I really wish that was still a thing they did because I could have gotten through this process a lot faster. Well, the <laughs> problem is that you're intellectually ready, but you're not maybe not socially ready. You're yeah. really not. I was 16 when I graduated from high school, three months after my 16th birthday. And I was terrified to go away to college. Mm. How could I, I can imagine yeah, as a 16 year old? Yeah. yeah. So there were many things, you know, my mother hadn't wanted me to skip at one point, but you couldn't fight with Dorothy because you couldn't. You still can't. <laughs> all, my fr- all my friends are skipping, mom. I have to be with them. It was a good argument. So I won that one. Um, but I guess that the, um, 
other than being a college graduate, my mother developed what is known as learned helplessness, mm. mm-hmm, which was mm. not atypical of women of that generation. Oh, I can't do that. I can't open this. Bernie, can you tune in the TV for me? I can't figure out how to do it. And here was this woman who was so, obviously, so smart. But that's what happened. That's what happened. I'll tell you another interesting story. I mentioned that my dad was a lawyer. I was a phenomenal student. This is not boasting. I graduated summa cum laude. My father would invite every boyfriend, whoever came home and met him. He'd say, young man, are you interested in becoming a lawyer? Did my dad ever ask me? Ooh, that is interesting. No, but here's the more interesting part. Many years later, when I was in my own therapy, because as a therapist, I felt like I had to do that. Of course. I realized my dad hadn't asked me, but I had never asked him. It had never occurred to me that I could be something like a lawyer. And that's where Ruth Bader Ginsburg was ahead of me. She yeah, could somehow right? or other visualize it, but I couldn't and my dad couldn't. And it wasn't just his fault, it was mine too, and the culture in which I had been raised. Exactly. I happen to have this conversation with an attorney recently about, well, A, so many old white dudes. You want to talk about old white dudes? White dudes in all law schools, like 90% white guys. No, not That's as so much. My, one of my <laughs> granddaughters in law is a graduate of Columbia Law. Okay. And it's balancing out. That it's is such a beautiful thing. She graduated, here. I guess, four years ago, four thereabouts. So That's it's nice. not nearly. I've said with the trend in medicine, psychology, law, everything but the STEM program, mm-hmm. at some point, all the men in America are either going to be unemployed or selling things to each other because that's where they go, right? That's accurate. That's so accurate. My program, so my doctorate program, I have a doctorate in chiropractic. Um, and we had, it was probably 45% women to 55% men, very little diversity. My school was all white kids. Um, but we, we'd seen it kind of flux back and forth. And I think so much of it for those programs, doctorate programs, things that are that higher caliber is this societal mm, coloration of it's so hard, like doctors and lawyers, it's so hard to become, to get your doctorate. It takes so much time and so much study and it's so difficult. I think even intelligent human beings go, I'm not sure it's worth that much effort if I'm not going to love it when I'm done kind of thing. And they just don't know. And so they don't try. And that for women, especially, I know we've come a long way. I know we've come so far, Um, but I've seen women say like, I can't go back to school. I can't do four more years. Well, what happens in four years? That time's going to go by anyway. Well, and I have kids or I need to work or I need this or I need that. And they don't even look at it as an option because there's no way I'll have the time or energy. And I look at my doctorate program and I was like, I took two and it was the uh, hourly equivalent of doing two and a half course loads at a time for three years straight. It was so many hours. And I had two children while I was there and I was the president of several things and I started several things and um, worked 
for most of that time, opened a business while I was there. You can do it too kind of thing. Um, I think we just have this natural assumption that we can't or don't or it's not worth it. And we just don't kind of like you were saying about I never assume like I never even thought about being an attorney. We just assume that it's going to be too difficult or too much energy without giving it a go. For me, it wasn't even about being too difficult or too much energy. I had never seen a woman lawyer. Right. There's no representation. There was no role model, no image of somebody that I could say, oh, I want to be like her. Exactly. Yeah. And I love that that exists now. There's, there's a lot more of it than there used to be. And that's super uplifting and gives me a lot of hope. On the other hand, I will say this in some ways it was easier when I was growing up, there were no choices. Choices are difficult to deal with when everything out there is open to you. You really have to think through and weigh What's going to suit me? What might I like? What am I most likely to be successful at? Mm-hmm. When your only choices were secretary, nurse, teacher, you just went and did it. So I think women's lives are in many ways far more complex, complicated, complex today than they were in my generation and the generation before me. My generation is the transitional generation. So many of my friends went back to school as their children were growing up and got advanced degrees in law, psychology, whatever, because Gloria Steinem had said we could do it. Betty Friedan said we could do it. And we needed those voices in our ears. So we, my generation now, have to be the voices in young women's ears that say, look, We've done it. Many of us had families, not everybody, but many of us did it while we had families. Mm -hmm. Um, You can do it all, but you have to kind of um, regulate Mm -hmm. where your attention goes. You can't give 100% energy to all of those pieces at once because what happens is then you get lost in the shuffle. And it's so important for women, if they're going to be successful in their marriages, as parents, as entrepreneurs, as professionals, it's so important that they take care of themselves. You cannot have energy for everything else if you don't include self-care. I think that is a beautiful message and a phenomenal way to wrap this up. Be superwoman, but also take care of you. I love that so much. Love that so much. Thank you so much, Dorothy, for hanging out with us today and for letting me interview you sort of, but just, man, for the stories and the perspective are phenomenal. For those of you who are listening, Dorothy and I are going to hang out for a little while. She's going to give us some information for my inner circle folks, specifically on women in business and the psychology with that. I'm really excited for that. If you'd like to join us there, you can go to powerhousepod.co and join the inner circle. You can come hang out with me and a bunch of other female business owners. Dorothy, thank you so much for your time, man. Okay. It's been a pleasure.